Timeless Voyager Radio. Self-development radio for the open mind. Interviews with leading edge authors and speakers. And now, Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager Radio. All right, this is Bruce Stephen Holmes for Timeless Voyager Radio. And uh, welcome to, I think, one of the uh, highlights of, uh, of the show series tonight. I have with me this evening a gentleman that many of you have uh, heard uh, if you follow Timeless Voyager Radio over the past eight years. Uh, this guest has been on many times, uh, and if you've never heard of him and uh, have never heard of the subject, then uh, it'll be just as good as if you have. The entire show this evening, we are going to talk about two subjects of which my guest is certainly an authority of, if not the authority of. The first subject we'll be talking about is the now very, very well-known Philadelphia experiment, which was an invisibility experiment carried on by the Navy back in the 1940s, and, and how that linked up with the ongoing Montauk project out of Montauk, New York. So, my guest's name is Al Bielek. Welcome to the show, Al. Good evening. Thanks for inviting me again. All right, let's, uh, this time you've got time to do it. So, Al, you have quite an interesting past, and perhaps you can explain to our listeners and bring them up to date with what we're going to talk about. Are we going to do Philadelphia first? Yes. Is that your choice? Yes, that's the most logical one, because there was the granddaddy experiment, which led to everything else. Philadelphia experiment was basically called that because in the last uh, days and months of test, the experiments took place in the harbor outside of the Philadelphia Navy Yard, and it acquired that nickname because of the location. It was the Navy's attempt in 1943. It goes back much earlier than that. But to make a major ship of the line invisible to radar as well as invisible to sight. The hardware worked. The <clears throat> system functioned in terms of the ship and the hardware. But the human element is where the failure uh, entered into the picture, and of course, in the 12 August test, there was another factor involved which was not anticipated. Uh, basically, it is what the subject is about. It goes back in terms of its origins to about 1931, when Nikola Tesla first looked at the subject, along with John Hutchinson, then dean of the University of Chicago, and a staff physicist at the University of Chicago, Dr. Emil Kurtenauer. They looked at this thing. And in 1934, it was transferred to the Institute of Advanced Study in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, and remained there essentially until they shut it down in 19, late 43, early 44. Now, before you continue, I want to ask you this. Uh, a lot of people have seen the uh, motion picture, the Philadelphia Experiment, and you have been not too critical of that movie. You feel it is fairly accurate. Is that correct? It's fairly accurate up through the first 15 minutes. Uh, from that point on... Oh, okay. Well, that's not much, is it? <laughs> Since we're talking about an hour and a half, that's not a lot. <laughs> no, there's a lot of Hollywood uh, add-in, you know, the chase, the love story, and the whole nine yards of that sort of thing. And the tail end was relatively close to the fact, but not entirely. Uh, but the basic premise in the beginning was right. They had the date wrong. It was in August, not October, for their very critical test. Okay, so the critical test was August 12th, 1943? Correct. And we want to write that note, that number down, because that's very important in the entire story, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Very much so. All right, so now, uh, coming back, uh, as you know, I'll have to interrupt every once in a while. So, basically, where we were was that Nikola Te Tesla and uh, John Hutchinson, is that his name? Yes. 
They were the two that worked on the original premise of how to take a large object and make it, what was it, radar and optically invisible. Well, in the early days, they were only concerned about optical invisibility because radar was an experimental laboratory toy in 1931. This first year where they started working on radar systems that I know of. Okay, so the point was that this was supposed to be optically invisible. Right. And when we come back after this break, we will talk about not only the fact that it was, but what the ramifications were for the people who were on that ship. Okay, Al, so where we are is that uh, Nikola Tesla's, uh, Tesla and uh, Dr. John Hutchinson, I believe that's his name, yes. uh, discovered that uh, they, uh, they came up with a way to make a large object optically invisible. And of course, this is very interesting to the Navy because at the time, uh, they would like to be able to make a ship invisible if that was possible. All right. And of course, the ramifications of this were initially it was a sort of a paper study program. The Navy became interested in the beginning and gave them some research money. That was not an unclassified project. It was not classified at that time. And in 1934, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or I should say 33, uh, reacquainted himself with Nikola Tesla. He knew him from 1917 when Roosevelt was under Secretary of the Navy and asked Tesla to work uh, for the government during World War One. He invited him to Washington and after a lot of conversation appointed him director of the project, which was then ongoing at the Institute of Advanced Study. On 36, they had a partial test. It was not very successful, but it gave him some indication it might be in the right direction. 1948, the first fully successful test. It was a small tender in the Brooklyn Navy Yard in Brooklyn, uh, New York. Unmanned, no personnel on board. Uh, the equipment was run over cables from two adjacent ships, and the tender became completely invisible. Now, as in that day, the radar was just beginning to become a tool of the Navy. Their first radar systems were on board ship in 1938, 1940. They had quite decent workable radar. It was still crude. And it made major advances between late 1940 and 42 with the advent of the magnetron. Very high-powered, very high-frequency radar. So then they became concerned about radar invisibility because the Germans also had excellent radar. They were not only pacing us and everything, they were ahead of us in most things, technically. And, of course, the big war problem was that we were losing half of our shipping going across the Atlantic at that time was being sunk by the German U-boat fleets. So the Navy's thought, the Merchant Marine was, well, if we can do something to slow this down, it would be a great advantage. The Navy liked the idea of making the ships invisible. So with the test in 1940 being successful, and then, of course, they classified it, called it Project Rainbow, they went on, Tesla was still director, <coughs> and they gave him a battleship to make invisible. He deliberately bombed out on that on March 42 because when you consider you're going from a ship of perhaps 250, 300 tons to 30,000 tons, the upgrading of power requirement is enormous. And Tesla had enough intuitive insight that he knew that that amount of electromagnetic power was going to have some very damaging effects on the human nervous system. Now, this was virgin territory at that time. It was not in the books. Of course, it is now, but as a result in part of the photo experiment and subsequent studies. But he knew there'd be something wrong. He bombed out on the test. 
turned the whole thing over to John von Neumann, who was on staff at the Institute. Now, when you use the term bombed out, I mean, he, he did... Uh, he did deliberately he, sabotaged right. the test. Now, he, he did that because he understood, as you said before, the effects of electromagnetic radiation and electromagnetic fields on the human nervous system. Correct. And we need to, to underline that because later on we will find out what he suspected actually, I guess, was way beyond uh, his expectation what actually happened. Yes, as much more happened than just that. So he left the project. Dr. John von Neumann took it over, converted the system from what would be called, to your engineer friends understand, an analog system, continuous modulation of uh, four RF transmitters, as well as <clears throat> four coils on deck to produce a very powerful magnetic field. Now let's underline for our listeners who John van Neumann later became. Okay. John van Neumann was a mathematician. He came from Europe. He was born in Bucharest, Hungary. So his PhD in math in 1926. Taught in the German University Systems for four years. Came to the U.S., worked at Princeton, and then became a member of the staff in 1933. And he had a very good grasp of mathematics, developed some new systems of his own. But when, unlike most mathematicians, he understood engineering and hardware. Tesla, of course, understood hardware very well, and he was not as much of a theoretician as some of the people would have liked. But nobody ever called Tesla incompetent, because he had a perfect track record up until March of 42. Impeccable. But he deliberately sabotaged the test because he's more concerned about human personnel than he was the uh, progress of the test at that time. The Navy would not give him additional time to solve the problem. Right. Now, that was because, as I remember, and I'll just fill our listeners in on, there was an actual drop-dead date, and that was the August 12th date, wasn't it? That came much later. Oh, it did? Yes. That was okay. not in 42. So that's not why. Uh, I thought that he left because he, d he felt he didn't have enough time to reach their... Uh, no, it was not uh, because of that date, which was not even in view at that time. It was because <clears throat> Tesla asked for more time to try and solve the human equation, and the Navy says, you have a test date, you have to meet it, there's a war on which of course there was at that time. But Tesla literally sabotaged it because he did not want to subject Taylors to the possibility of being uh, neurologically damaged, ruined, or even killed. Okay, now for those of you who may have tuned in, I hope you didn't, but if you did, this is Timeless Voyager Radio. My guest is Al Bielik. We are talking about the Philadelphia Experiment, and there is one thing that I really should add to this entire story, and that is that Al Bielik, actually, his life was, uh, well, how should I say it? Right, well, actually involved, but I was saying on the screen, you are actually portrayed as one of the Cameron brothers, which is what you were. That's right. So you have uh, real good uh, information, and we will, incidentally, somewhere around this uh, talk, we'll talk about how it was that uh, you became who you are now and how it is you have all this information. When Tesla uh, dropped out of this test, von Neumann took over. John von Neumann, of course, was a very well-known, prestigious mathematician, well-known in Europe and the United States. And he was a staff member from 1933, and as were other people, including Albert Einstein. He decided to redesign the whole system, and which he did, and use a somewhat altered approach, pulsed digital system, which produced a series of uh, pulses to produce essentially the same results, but they also had very special modulation. 
basically we were running two fields, one inside the other. There was a major electric field produced by a special quadrophase antenna mounted on the top of the highest mast on the ship, which produced a rotating electric field counterclockwise. And outside of that was the magnetic field produced by two huge generators in the hold of the ship and cables running out to these four deck top coils which stood over six feet high with single coil tapered winding, single coil copper tubing with an inch and three quarters in diameter liquid cooled because it got hot. And uh, these four produced a rotating magnetic field because of the way the electronics were set up. These two rotating fields interacted with the gravitic field, and gravity is a field, not a mutual attraction of matter for matter. That is now known fairly well in physics, but it's not what it was taught in the books, of course, in those days, or even most of the books now. And you can access the time field when you interact with the first three. This is in accordance with unified field theory. By doing that, we produced a slight shift within the confines of the generated field of the time field so that the object, of course, the Navy ship in this case, no longer reflected energy from a radar beam or light for that matter. And when you do not reflect energy, you don't see it. It's as simple as that, but it took a vast amount of research and hard way to do it. So the point was that it actually was successful and the, the uh, ship, well, we haven't actually talked about the ship, but uh, it did become invisible, didn't it? Yes. The first test on 22 July 43 was extremely successful in that the ship became invisible to eye, to camera, and to radar. The problem was in the first test, which was cut short after 20 minutes, there were some sailors on deck deliberately stationed there to be observers, who were very sick, very nauseous, and out of it after only 20 minutes of exposure to these very high-powered fields. We're talking about megawatts of power, and uh, they were only uh, between 50 and 100 feet from the antenna mast, and even closer to the magnetic coils pulsing out this vast amount of energy. So they <clears throat> went back into port, and Van Neumann knew he had a serious problem, asked the Navy for more time to solve it, solve the human equation, and he did not get much more time. They demurred for a few days and gave him a drop-dead date of 12 August 1943. Uh, is this the part where uh, many of the sailors were actually embedded in the bulkhead after the experiment? Not on the first test. It was in the second test. It, that was the second test. So yeah, this is the first test. So in the first test, at least they hadn't been embedded in the uh, bulkhead, but certainly they had problems psychologically. Is that correct? Psychologically and neurologically, yes. And this was because of these extreme electromagnetic waves. What were, what are we talking about as far as extreme is concerned? Well, in terms of extreme power-wise, we had uh, four booster radio transmitters operating at 160 megahertz, uh, which had the capability of putting out two megawatts CW. Now, t for people closed. who, including myself, what, in layman's terms, what are we talking about here? Well, a standard radio transmitter, an AM transmitter, which people listen to every day, the FCC assigns a maximum output power of 50 kilowatts per station. Okay, now that's 50,000 watts. We're talking watts. about something which is, uh, well, roughly 40 times as strong. So, uh, <laughs> I can't do the math in my head. Is this like 2 million watts? Yes. 
So two million watts, and then on top of that, this was not uh, on a radio tower, let's say, that was 10, 15 miles from your house. It was uh, on 20... Radio, 20 about a 50 to 100 feet away from the personnel. Right. So this was a lot of radio wave going out. That's correct. Okay, so that gives us an idea as to what happened. All right. Make it worse, it was pulsed. It wasn't analog continuous, and the pulsed format produces a series of harmonics called the Fourier series, which are even more damaging. So, with the, uh, you might say the deck was stacked against the health and welfare of the sailors on deck. Now, this only affected those on the deck. It did not affect them below deck because they were shielded by all the steel of the walls, the bulkheads, the decking, etc. All right, so should we jump to the second test, or is there more to... No, basically not. There's a volunteer crew, which was obtained by going throughout the Navy, and some 33 enlisted men plus the officers were involved. Now, you and your brother were also volunteers on this project. Well, we were volunteers, you might say, because our father in 1939 volunteered us to go in the Navy and in September 1939 at the old 50 Church Street, New York Station. Father was a Navy man himself, though he had retired from the Navy in 1929. And Duncan and I, there's Duncan Cameron and Edward Cameron, that was my name then, uh, I was born in 1916, 4th of August, and Duncan in 1917. We went through school, we both had PhDs in physics from different universities, I from Harvard and he from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And the father en enlisted us, you should always say, into the Navy. He was all arranged. We went to a 90-day wonder school after receiving commissions as Lieutenant J.J. 90-day wonder school, and then we were assigned to the Institute. And then we found out what we were going to be working on. We did not know in advance. So you and your brother are uh, on the second trial? First and second. We ran the equipment for both the first trial of the Eldridge and the second trial of the Eldridge. Let's talk about the second trial and let our listeners know, because basically this is what the Philadelphia story is all about. Correct. Well, the fire up the equipment, and we did this on radio command from uh, the observer ship. In that test, there were three observer ships. Yeah, let's let's frame this. Uh, you were how far out in the harbor? Well, we were out in the harbor, and we were down from the Navy Yard, about six miles down harbor, but it was out in the middle of the uh, <coughs> river, the Delaware River, and it was about a mile wide at that point. Okay, so this is a pretty big area. I mean, it's not yes. uh, uh, visible to... Because many times the question comes up, did anybody else see this happen kind of you thing? You must also understand this was 1943, and when Philadelphia was not populated like it is now in the suburbs, and there was no superhighways, and there was very little opportunity for people to see from shore what was going on out there in the harbor. Right, and a half a mile offshore is a lot. Right. So you were basically a half a mile from either shore? Yes. Okay, and six miles down from the uh, Navy Yard. Correct. Six miles is a long way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And that's out of most of the city area. So we fired up the equipment, because in those days it had to be done manually, there were no computers. And we went through the proper sequence. And the observers on the carrier, there was a carrier, there was a Navy cutter, and there was a commercial merchant ship called the SS Furiouseth over-observers, <clears throat> and the Captain Harrison, now deceased, was the man in charge of these tests, was on the carrier. And the, ob the object of that test was radar invisibility, and they did not particularly want optical invisibility. They changed their minds about that, so it was a slight downgrading of the requirements. 
But everything looked right for about 70 seconds. The ship was radar invisible, and you could still see an outline through a greenish haze. Suddenly, there's a blue flash of light. The ship was gone. The waterline was gone. The waterline was much larger than the outline of the hull. And uh, it was gone. Well, they all panicked. And nobody knew what to do. We couldn't raise any way by radio, of course. And they just sat and waited. And about four hours later, the ship suddenly reappears in the harbor in the same point where it had left. And when it did reappear, it was obvious that there was something wrong. As part of the special antenna mast was broken off and missing. They had some superficial damage on the ship, could raise no one by radio. And through the binoculars, Captain Harrison could see there's something drastically wrong because of the way some of the crew members were milling around in a totally a disorganized manner on deck. So they sent a boarding party. And the boarding party, as it boarded, found what problems we really had. There were two sailors buried in the steel deck. Their bodies were intermingled with the steel molecules. And two were buried upright, standing in a bulkhead. And a fifth man had a hand buried in the bulkhead. He lived. He was the only one of the five who did live because he cut off his hand and gave an artificial one later. Now, just, just to kind of back up, let's just explain to people why these sailors were embedded in the steel. Let's get into some rather hairy aspects of mathematics, hyperspace, and what happened. The ship literally took off from the harbor, out of our reality, if you will, was in a hyperspace domain where it was sustained by the fields being generated on board that same ship, the Eldridge. Now, the reason why it jumped into hyperspace involves another experiment going on, ongoing tests from the Montauk Project at Montauk, Long Island in 1983. And these tests at Montauk, of course, Montauk have been online for years, and the tests of 22 July did not produce any problem. And it was only on the 12th of August. And it took us many years, decades, in fact, to find out the real facts as to why the two locked up and why the ship disappeared in the hyperspace. It's hard to understand unless you're something of a physicist and a mathematician, but basically what happened was the two experiments through time locked up, pulled the ship out of the harbor into a hyperspace, and it stayed there in this bubble, sustained by its own generators and fields. Well, everything went haywire, <clears throat> so far as Duncan and I were concerned, in the control room. And we could not shut the equipment off. We knew something was drastically wrong. We could not shut it off. The AC power handles and switches were totally frozen. They were not movable. Now, in the movie, this so far is, is where it's... correct. That's the way it was shown in the movie, and that's the way it happened. So it was really, there was a lot of shaking going on. There was all kinds of strange feelings you were having. Everything was very, very jumbled at this moment. And there was high voltage, or what appeared to be high voltage arcovers in the control room, and there was no high voltage equipment in the control room. So we decided, let's get out of here, it's time to leave. We opened the bulkhead door, ran out on deck, and we saw sailors milling around, but nobody was buried in steel at that point. And we decided, let's get out of here, jump overboard. Now, I have to understand this from the prior test, and this one also. When you approach the railing of the ship, you could see the ship and the railing, and everything on board the ship in a more or less normal manner, except that there was a sort of greenish haze around. This turned out later by analysis to be ozone gas. We are now in a pretty exciting area here. You jumped off the ship, and what happened? Well, we thought we were going to hit the water and uh, swim ashore. So you thought you were going to be in the uh, 
uh, about a half mile offshore. That's yes. it's a heck of a swim at night. Or was it day or night? No, it was daylight. So you figured a half mile swim, at least you're off the ship and you should be safe and whatever was going on with the ship, it never occurred to you that there was something going on as far as time-space continuum is no, concerned. No, we had no such inclination in our knowledge at the time. So you did not hit water. What happened? Well, we kept falling and falling. It felt like we were going down an elevator shaft and never hitting bottom. And the feeling was rather... We were a bit nauseous. We were totally disturbed, uh, individually terrorized. We were not talking to each other at this point. No, you we were. We were falling separately. <laughs> right. There were no conversations going no, on. There was no conversation. All right. And <clears throat> we can joke about it now, but it was no joking matter then. No. And we kept falling, and eventually what subjectively felt or seemed like about two minutes, we have no idea really how long it was, we wound up standing on our feet inside of a military uh, compound with a chain-link fence to our back, which we recognize as strictly a military design. It was night. <clears throat> we didn't know where we were, and suddenly there was a blinding searchlight coming down on us from a helicopter overhead, and we didn't know what a helicopter was because 43, there were very few of them. That's right. So the point here is that you knew something was going on because yes. here was a helicopter. And this blinding light. People need to understand. Yeah, people need to be reminded now. You were in 1943 when you jumped off the ship. Right. Why don't we just jump ahead? Where did right. you? What year were you in when you got well, off? When we finally caught up with ourselves, and the military police came roaring out of somewhere and grabbed us and took us to a building and in an elevator and down several levels. We were told by an elderly civilian who approached us that his name was Dr. John Van Neumann. And we were in 1983 at Montauk, Long Island, part of the Montauk Project. Well, we, now that we, was August 12th. That still. was August 12th. So you went from August 12th, 1943 to August 12th, 1983 in a matter of moments. Right. We thought he was nuts, but we soon found out he was. Because he was 40 years older, wasn't he? Yes, gray-haired man, actually white-haired, but was left of his hair. And I might point out the public record says that Dr. John von Neumann died of cancer in 1957. He did not. It was a phony funeral. It was another one of the government employees giving somebody a, under the Federal Protected Witnesses Program a new ID, and he went ahead and wrote more books, did a lot of engineering right up until the 80s. And... Uh, <clears throat> He uh, sort of vanished from the circuit after the collapse of Montauk. That's another story. Yeah, we're going we're de we're definitely going to talk about that. All right, now. So let's he see. told us, "Here we are. It's 1983. We didn't believe him. He gave us a Cook's tour. We see computers, graphic displays, large screen color TV, with none of which existed in '43. We sat down and watched TV, and, and to make a long story short, when you see commercial ads saying, take, "Why not take your next vacation to Hawaii aboard our 747 jet?" Oh, what the hell is a 747 jet? In terms of 1943, they didn't exist. And they wouldn't even have the concept. So you and your brother absolutely had to, at this point, accept that you had done time travel. Yes. There was no yeah. other choice. We did. And, of course, the inimitable Dr. Van Neumann says, well, gentlemen, we have a problem. I said, okay, what's that? He says, well, this Eldridge is sitting in hyperspace. We can't control it from here. The power is still on. There is enough fuel on board for the equipment to run another 30 days if it doesn't break down first. And they said, the cyberspace bubble, of course, he knew what he was talking about, and we did too because we knew the physics and the math, is growing, and we don't know how big it's going to get. Somebody has to go back there and shut that equipment off, and I think you gentlemen are the ones who are going to do it. And we looked at him and said, oh, great. Now, just how are we going to get there? And he said, that's no problem. Well, we thought he was nuts again, but what he told us was that at Montauk, 
<clears throat> we have complete control over space and time. We can send you anywhere as we want, any time we want. Now that's where we come into Montauk. Here we are in Montauk, 1983. They have control in 1983 over space and time, which we, here in 1995, it sounds like science fiction. But it was not. And is not, I guess. Correct. Is <laughs> okay. Anyway, they sent us back. And uh, we went up in the decks of the Old Ridge, and uh, we went looking for means to destroy the equipment. We found some good hefty axes and started smashing. And we broke up enough of the electron tubes, electron equipment, we even cut the power lines to the switch boxes. We had gloves on, of course. And then uh, at that point, the generator started to wind down. We knew it was over, essentially. So we put down the axis and went back out on deck. And that's when we saw two sailors buried in the deck, two more upright in the bulkhead. One of whom turned out to be our younger brother, Jim, who had enlisted in the Navy after Pearl Harbor in 1941. And he was dying, and he went over and since his head and shoulders were out, and he was able to talk a little and cry. I went over and put my arms around him, and he died that way. And Duncan took one look at me and what was going on, headed to the railing, looks back at me like, well, ain't you coming along? And he jumped overboard before the fields collapsed. It took approximately two minutes. In that period of time, they were still active. He disappeared again. As we found out much later, he wound up back at Montauk sometime in 82, 83. Wow, what a hook to, to get us into the next... I mean, back to the future, literally. <laughs> next hour. That part uh, of the movie was correct also, that he went back. Okay, and, so the point was, that right here, you elected to stay on the ship. Yes. Duncan jumps overboard before the, the uh, field uh, collapses. Right. So he moves back into, now did he go back to 1983 or? We don't know exactly where he went. It was in the period around 82, 83. And uh, we do not have access to all the records. <coughs> but, <coughs> excuse me, there's subsequent uh, work under hypnosis and otherwise indicates that it was probably early 83. You ended up in Montauk after you jumped off the ship, which was optically invisible and uh, radar invisible. And that's where we are now. You're uh, actually, no, you're back on the ship. You've turned yep. off the... Uh, the uh, weapon's been destroyed. The field, it's it's collapsing. Your brother Duncan jumps off the ship. He goes back to 1982 or 3, you're not sure. And what did you do? Well, I stayed with the ship. And, of course, they put a special crew on board because those who were on deck were insane. Uh, they were left alive, and uh, the special crew took the ship back into its regular port at the Philadelphia Navy Yard, and then they had about four days of inquiry what went wrong. I gave my report. I told about my little trip into the future. Nobody believed me, and Dr. Von Neumann didn't either. Now, tell me something. How much time took place here during the time that you were over there? Because I understand there was quite a bit of difference. Yes. We were going about, Duncan and I were going about 12 hours. Okay, so there was 12 hours of invisibility from our point of view. No, in that's just an interesting point. There was four hours of invisibility from the point of view of the people in the harbor. Okay, that's what we I meant. We were going 12 hours. All right, so uh, as far as August 12, 1943 is concerned, you were gone. The ship was optically invisible for four hours. Right. As far as your experience in August 12, 1983, you were there for 12 hours. Correct. Okay. And that's hard to reconcile, but things are not linear when you deal with okay. the space-time phenomena like that. Hey, I can deal with this, and I'm sure the listeners can, too. Now, uh, let's see. At this point, you make your uh, report, no one believes that you were there. Right. 
Eventually, Dr. John von Neumann did believe me because he set up his own little time machine, sent me back to the future several times to bring back proof. I did, and that was the end of that. I remained with the Navy until 1947, and I uh, was transferred to Los Alamos during the war years, 1944 to 1947. I was there from July 44 to July 4th, 47. I was arrested by Navy MPs charged with espionage in front of the family. I had uh, married in the meantime and had a son. And uh, I was hauled off and taken to Washington, D.C. Expected a full court-martial. Charges were canceled or dropped. And I was told I had a new assignment at Fort Hero, Long Island. Well, Fort Hero, Long Island was exactly the same physical site as where the Montauk Project was later and is today. So I was transferred there, and I wasn't there very long when I was told to stand in the middle of a traffic circle. Well, this is going to be a great segue. you got about 20 seconds. Go ahead. Right. And I disappeared, surrounded by MPs, back on Montauk, and they gave me the nine yards of total brainwashing, wiped all memories as Edward Cameron, physically shrank me in physical size to a one-year-old kid, and put me back in the past, and I became Al Bielik in a new family. You, as Edward Cameron... Having uh, having had a, a PhD in physics from Harvard University at that time, uh, having stayed with the ship which became optically invisible in the Philadelphia Harbor, and your brother Duncan Cameron, who elected to jump off the ship back to 1983. Wow, this is going to be a, this is be a strange uh, synopsis here. Uh, you are then uh, ordered to go to Washington, or arrested actually, brought to Washington, and then uh, sent. Uh, at that point to, what was it called? To Fort Hero, which Fort was at the extreme eastern tip of Long Island. Okay, Fort Montauk Hero, Point. right, which is now Montauk Point. Right. It was, not, it was Montauk Point then, too. Uh, at that point, in uh, you are then sent where? Time transferred back to the future, to the Montauk Project. In the same physical location, essentially, but uh, time shift to 1983. So you're sent from 1943 to 1983? 47. I'm sorry, 1947 to 1983. Right. You end up back in 1983, and then they do one other special little surprise for you. Yes. Dr. John von Neumann told me, he said, I don't like what they're going to do to you, but this is what they're going to do to you, and I'm only a consultant here, and I can't change it. He said, they're going to strip you entirely of your memory of Edward Cameron. They're going to do some special age regression number on you and send you back into the past and another family as a kid again to start life over. So they did. Physically, I was reduced to the size of a one-year-old kid. Time transferred back to the past, 1927. Exactly when, I don't know, but I, the first memory I have in that family is of a Christmas party in 1927, sitting on Mother's Grand Piano. Now, the point... It must be interesting for you because, you know, we, we, we talked about this almost three years ago on one yeah. of the shows. And my first comment was, was absolutely the one I'm going to make right now. It's hard enough to believe all this stuff about the time travel. Right. But them sending you back and making you a child, putting you in the family of, of the Belex, uh, is absolutely hard to, to, uh, well, to buy now. I but, agree. It's pretty hard to believe. But then, but then we can top that, can't we, with, with Edward? <laughs> I'm sorry, with Duncan. Well, one has to consider this. Here's a fax real fast, though, from Martinsburg, uh, West Virginia. Uh, John says, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs>
<laughs> John, we're talking about the Philadelphia experiment, and uh, thanks for your uh, facts. Um, you might want to rent the video to understand a little bit about this. Uh, Al Bielik is my guest. Uh, let's let's keep moving forward, though. We we unfortunately can't uh, help it. I have a very quick little bit on this whole business of age regression. Tesla, if you look at his photographs over the years, did not age until he was 75, and then he aged very rapidly. I mean, his own actual calendar age. And there's considerable evidence that he was working on problems of trying to study and understand aging. Howard Hughes bought the Miami Research Institute in the late 40s, which was devoted to studies of aging problems, and they had a great deal of success in trying to reverse the problem. And, of course, much has been done by the government since, undercover and under high security. They do have the techniques. I personally know three people who have had their ages reduced from about the mid-60s to about the 20s. However, that's not what happened to me. They gave me the bum's rush, so to speak. Okay, so you are uh, back in what year now? So I went back to 27, and I grew up as Al Bielik, not knowing anything in my past. Okay, so you grew up then in 1927. Onward. As a one-year-old in a family of the Bielex. Correct. And somewhere along the line, you then all of a sudden began having recollections of something strange. Yes, but it didn't really happen until after I had gone through the Navy the second time and come out, been... Uh, through a very strange situation. My own business had failed. I went to college, eventually became an electronic engineer from 1958 to 1988. And in that period of time, I had a fascinating, a complete fascination with the subject of the Philadelphia experiment, not knowing why. In 1986, I became aware, after several visits to Long Island, uh, with Preston Nichols and uh, some friends there, including my brother Duncan in his new body, uh, I knew you were going to throw that in. Now we have to stop. He died. <laughs> we and have was reborn. To tell, all right, we'd let tell everybody what happened to Duncan. You might as well do it. Okay. He had a problem in the work. He went back to Montauk in the 80s, 82, 83. He aged extremely rapidly, about a year an hour. And, of course, as I said, they had problems of uh, capabilities of going forward or backward in time. So for various reasons involving the Philadelphia experiment, they could not allow either one of us to die, so they had to go back to father, who was still very much alive in the 50s, and have him uh, remarry and, shall we say, have another kid. Well, in 51, another boy was born. It was named after the original one, Alexander Duncan Cameron. And that was the new Duncan. And his memories prior to 1963 were essentially very fleeting or missing and under hypnosis in 19... All right, hold off. Wait, 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 wait. You, you just skipped over one part. Okay. So they took uh, Duncan Cameron's quote-unquote soul... Yes, and put it back in another body. And put it into another body so that the one that he was in could finally deteriorate and they could keep uh, Duncan basically alive. Right. Okay. And uh, very briefly, he grew up in a more or less haphazard but natural manner. Went into the Air Force when he was 18 and eventually wound up as part of the Montauk Project as the new Duncan. I became part of the Montauk Project myself as Al Bielik back in 19, uh, roughly around 75, 76. I spent quite a few years involved with that project. I knew nothing at that point, nor did Duncan, of his involvement in the Philadelphia Experiment. Well, after that project 
the Montauk project, not to cover what it is, crashed on the night of 12 August 83. We were all off the project. We were brainwashed again, but eventually the memories came back, and rather quickly because Duncan and I and others would visit the old site, which is at Montauk Point, the old Montauk Air Force Station. When you go back into the site of the crime, so to speak, more than once, there's a very powerful psychic stimulus to the subconscious mind, and the memories start to come back. And they did for me in May of 86 in one of my visits that I had been involved in the Montauk project. I was already being told this by Duncan and Preston. And memories came back of it, but not of the Philadelphia experiment. Now that came back later. I came back in January of 88. And very late one Saturday night, I started watching HBO, never having seen the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, or the video. So at that night late, and it hit me like a bombshell right the first time around and I knew I had been involved in the Philadelphia experiment. Much has occurred since then to bring the memories back in full view, and most of it is there. Right now, what we need to do is, otherwise we will run out of time, so yep. we need to start talking about the Montauk project. Right. First of all, what was the project itself? The project at Montauk actually began a little bit earlier, about 1947, at Brookhaven National Laboratories, a continuation of work done both by the Germans and the Americans on mind control, time travel, and related areas. And eventually this project was moved to the Montauk Air Force Station in 1968. The military abandoned the base, uh, at least the records they did, and left a group of civilians, which were largely German repatriate scientists who come to the U.S. during the years prior to World War II and during, as well as some after. They're working at Montauk on the military base on the surface and underground on mind control, time travel, and related projects. Tied in with this were a group of aliens, extraterrestrials, who, because of an agreement signed by President Eisenhower in 1954, gave them access to much of our work and effort, a mutual agreement of non-interference and technical assistance. And they became part of the Montauk Project, as we called it. And I was called that because of the location, the primary project being at the Montauk Air Force Station. Other areas were involved, but that was later. And they became part of the project and gave a lot of technical expertise to our scientists on how to build a time tunnel. We could okay. do time Beautiful. Machine. Well, we're discussing the Montauk project and the fact that there were aliens involved because of the Eisenhower Agreement in 54. Now, we're talking about aliens uh, from outer space, not Correct. from across the border. Correct. I mean, <laughs> real ones. These are uh, reptilians? Reptilians, non-reptilians, draconians, uh, people from Sirius A, and, of course, a bunch of those nice little greys, everything from the small size to the seven-footers. Now, how did they get involved? They became involved because... There was an agenda involved, and we didn't recognize this at first, but the government made the agreement with the alien groups to provide us with some additional technology, which they readily decided to do and would do, provided we would give them a timeshare option on the use of the equipment after it was built and functional. They had their own agenda, and they were allowed a certain period of time to operate the station for their own usage. And this was agreed, and the station became operational as a time travel machine, so to speak, a one that went through time and space about 1976-77. And the mind control operations were largely dropped from there, except for the part involving the Montauk boys and the implanting of their minds with pre-programmed 
preconditioned uh, responses. That went on at Montauk also. We'll have to talk about that later, but go yep. ahead. Anyway, this project was very successful in terms of traveling through time and space, and the important point was that we didn't know it at that time, but the alien groups, particularly the reptilians, had an agenda, and their agenda was to make the two operations, the Philadelphia Experiment and the Montauk Project, lock up at some point, and the point which they knew was the only time it could happen was on the point of the Earth's biorhythms all locking together and synchronizing, which is the 12th of August, every 20 years, 1943, 63, 83, that noisy meter away. The course of that, the date went back from the future to the Navy in the 40s, 43, that the test for the second test of the Eldritch had to take place on the 12th of August, and the only way they could do that is give a drop-dead date telling von Neumann, finish it by then or forget it. Well, they knew very well he would take up to the last minute. So the point is that the instruction for the Philadelphia experiment <laughs> came from the future. was given on August 12, 1983 for the, for the year of 1943. Correct. From sometime in the 80s, the data went back. How it was transmitted, I do not know, but it wound up in the hands of Admiral King. From Admiral King, it went to Admiral uh, Halliburton Sr., who was the man in charge of the tests and the experiments, the director of the Office of Naval Engineering. So linear thinking keeps us for under, from understanding this totally, right? I'm sorry? Linear thinking hmm. keeps us from understanding this completely. They're correct. That is right. You have to get out of the mode of logical linear thinking and realize that there are more things in this universe than Horatio even thought of. And we had here a very interesting problem and a situation where alien intelligence was dictating what we do in an experiment in 43 when we didn't know anything about aliens. They weren't around then in any noticeable numbers. Right, because the famous Roswell uh, case occurred in 1947. Correct. And then in many respects, that was a result of the lockup of the two because we, the two locking up created a rift in space-time 40 years wide, August 12, 43 to August 12, 83. Very deliberate. Uh, not so far as the Navy knew or the government knew. This was delivered because of alien influence and intervention. Now, they had their agenda. They wanted, what, to get in here? That yes. was what, that was what it was about. They wanted to get in here in big time with big ships from another, other domains. What they wanted was they wanted to use the Earth as a base. Correct. Is that correct? That is correct. And it was easier for them to, to, to cause a rift yes. in time, because that way no one could see them come in. Right. And since uh, we did it for them, it made it much easier for them. And... That was the nature of the beast. Al, the Montauk project, uh, basically, from my understanding, uh, created a lot of um, interesting situations, one of them being time travel, but also ways to travel from uh, the Earth to many planets through a time tunnel. Are you there, Al? Yes. Can you hear me? Now I can. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but yes. So did you hear my question? Yes, I did, and okay. that is correct. Uh, they were able to travel from Earth to other planets, other parts of this galaxy if they chose. It's a matter of, shall we say, steering the equipment involving many computers in those days, IBM 360s and 70s, and much better ones now, but they didn't then. And uh, zeroing in on this tunnel wherever they wished to zero in on, and they could ship a person or an object there and then bring them back. And this was ongoing from 
well, let's say about 77 where the equipment was working right until 83 when the system, the entire station was sabotaged and destroyed in one night. And it was rebuilt since, but nevertheless, that is what they did in that period of time. It was very successful. Okay, so you went from being Edward Cameron to Al Bielik. To Al Bielik. Duncan Cameron remains, keeps the same name, but has yes. a new body. Yes. <laughs> and no memories, whatever, of his involvement in the Philadelphia experiment. Now, Duncan's, uh, uh, let's say, participation in the Montauk Project was what? He was one of the principals involved with uh, working with the time machine, if you will, the time travel aspects. He was uh, one of the controllers. He was a very sensitive psychic, probably. Excuse me. Properly trained, uh, with various types of training and necessary. You don't take a psychic off the street and put him in the equipment. Uh, had to go through virtual reality training and a few other things. And he worked very well along with a few other people. So basically, what was done in Montauk was a combination of using the sensitivities of a psychic and the uh, programming abilities of computers to uh, put together a kind of a hybrid uh, space-time machine. Very hybrid, that's very correct, and it worked. 